1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting from verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have had her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For anyone, for long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is God's word. I'm wearing a flak jacket. <laughs> okay, I won't make jokes because uh, the reason that there's a... is because some of the issues here actually really matter. Uh, and they concern us greatly. And so uh, I'm, I'm going to not be flippant, but we are going to ask for God's help because uh, there are both complicated and controversial things here. So let's pray. Father God, we uh, pray that your wisdom would reign. We pray that we would learn to trust that you as creator know best and that we as creatures would delight to uh, be shown your way. And so we ask that you would give us uh, minds that are not too quick to judge, but that are sharp to think as we listen to your truth. Amen. Look, there are two kinds of difficult passages in the Bible. Uh, There are those passages that are difficult to understand, either grammatically complex or um, Lessing's Ugly Ditch. There's a huge cultural gap between us and them, so it's hard for us to get our heads around what's going on. And then there are those passages which are difficult because they, they say stuff which is either enormously costly for us or culturally is just hugely offensive to us. And 1 Corinthians 11 is both, <laughs> which makes it fun. Um, and as we'll see, it is, it is both very complicated. There are just things that are difficult here that require a lot of study. But also it is offensive to our culture. And what's more, is it is more offensive to our culture today than it was two years ago. Not because God's word has changed, God's word never changes, but our culture has shifted, especially in, uh, in areas of gender and our understanding of, of male and female. It's shifted very quickly and very far. And the problem is that um, we tend to, we look at the Bible with the lenses of culture, we wear culture's glasses, and so we look at the Bible and decide whether it, it is worth listening to or worth rejecting on the basis of whether it matches with our culture out here. We, 
we judge the creator's timeless wisdom by the shifting, ever-changing standards of, of London. Uh, which is crazy, to be honest, because our culture is in a mess. And the mess and the destructiveness of our culture is probably nowhere more apparent than in the issue of understanding of gender, of male and female. Uh, the confusion and argument has now gone way beyond whether there are such things as roles for men and women to the very understanding of whether there is such a thing as gender distinctives of men and women. The fundamental issues. There was a, I mean, it came home uh, last week, there was a, a pool, Evans Pool in Seattle, over on the west coast of America. And uh, it was a busy time at the, the swimming pool. And a guy walks into the girls' changing room, ladies' changing room, and takes his clothes off to change. And the pool attendant said, we can't say anything. Because when they challenged him, he said, no, I have a right to. Uh, if I decide I want to identify as a woman, I can change here. And so while little girls were running around, he took off all his clothes. Hang on a second. Uh, I know that we're meant to be progressive, but that just seems a bit nuts. Uh, and this is the thing. Deep down, I think we all know that there is something slightly wrong there, that there are actually some fundamental differences between men and women. It's 2016. In a few months' time, there's going to be the Rio Olympics. And unless you think that there should be no separation of male and female athletes, unless you think that uh, female runners should not get a medal unless they can beat not only every other female, but Usain Bolt and all the other men as well, unless you think that, uh, that actually gender means nothing and that you know, there should be no separate categories at the Olympics, men and women compete equal footing, that's true equality surely, then I think deep down we do recognize, no, actually, that's, that's ridiculous. There are differences. I'm sure we'd, we'd all probably describe those differences differently. But it is important just to recognize at the start that there is huge confusion in our culture. But deep down there is, I think inherent in all of us, a recognition that there are some differences between, uh, between men and women. Uh, many of us are confused about this, though. Many of us are deeply confused. And as a church... Um, as people who, uh, not all of us would call ourselves Christians, but uh, those of us who would, it, it, it's difficult to, to work out what to think when we're being bombarded with a whole load of views, um, opinion pieces in the papers pretty much every week, supporting a, a radically different understanding of men and women from the one that we read about in the Bible. And so if we want to hold firm to God's truth... We need to keep reinforcing and keep coming back to what the Bible teaches on this issue regularly. Because otherwise, we're not going to be able to stand firm in our own confidence of what God says. And nor are we going to be able to offer light and hope to a culture that is really in a mess and is getting worse on this issue. Now, um, the reason that Corinth is in a mess on this issue is actually very important. Uh, The reason that Paul has to write here is not because Christianity is regressive and oppressive to women. In fact, it's for the opposite reason. It is precisely because because Christianity gave an unimaginably high status to women, uh, a status that was unheard of in the Greco-Roman world, that there is confusion in the church about whether there should be any distinctions now between men and women. You see, I mean, Christianity basically dropped like a bomb into the patriarchal world of the time. It completely detonated their understanding uh, of what it meant to, to be men and women and who ran society. 
It, it just wasn't like the other religions. You see, Jesus, the founder, valued women not as a sexual commodity, but as people with opinions to be listened to, people worth dying for, people worth spending time with, people worth valuing. The first witnesses to his resurrection were women. That was the first people he chose to reveal himself to after he rose from the dead. And in Christianity, um, the man of the house could not decide the faith of the family. Unlike every other culture, every other belief system of the time in Christianity, now the guy doesn't get to decide. Each member of the family has to put their trust in Jesus for themselves. The man of the family can't be baptized for the family in Christianity. Everybody has to get baptized. His wife has to decide if she wants to trust in Jesus. It's a radically different way of understanding uh, how men and women should relate and their, their relative values. The Holy Spirit in Christianity doesn't just indwell men and empower men for ministry and mission. He indwells women. And the New Testament makes it very clear that women's ministry is required in a church if the church is to grow healthy. No church can grow healthy on the ministry of men alone. That's not Christianity. Christianity requires the ministry of women. Uh, So the great apostle Paul declares in Galatians, one of his earliest letters, and a letter that almost definitely would have been read by the Corinthians at this point. He he says in Galatians 3.28, In Christ there is now no longer male nor female. In the sense that the old barriers that you've used to divide, they just don't exist anymore. In Christ, every human individual has an equal dignity, an equal value, an equal worth. Jesus died to save everybody, regardless of class, color, race, and gender. And so it's easy to see how one might think that the the empowerment of women that took place under Christianity might lead you to think, well, then there should be no differences between men and women in church. And that's the issue that Paul is writing to. Now, one other thing I should say just before I dive in is that if you're, um, as many will be here tonight, not yet a Christian, still looking into these things, you're probably thinking, what on earth am I doing here? And the person bringing you is probably thinking, why on earth did I bring them today of all days? Um, I'm not sure if this would be helpful, but I like to think this in one sense is like the shallow end of the swimming pool. It's not a great place to dive in. The deep end of Christianity is the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything centers on him. And so he is what you need to work out. Did he really rise from the dead? Because if he didn't, well, who cares what the Bible says about anything else, frankly? But if he did rise from the dead, then he is God and he, well, suddenly he has the right to to tell us how things work. So work out Jesus first um, before before getting too hung up on some of the the other things. Now, we're not going to have time to, as we uh, dive into this text, to work through the arguments on every point, because it is just a complicated passage. But um, do ask me afterwards if you've got questions. And please, 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 uh, don't go away feeling confused or angry. Now, some of the things that um, the passage says, and some of the things that um, I will say in explaining it, are offensive in our culture. So it wouldn't surprise me if some of us find some of tonight offensive. It's not my intention to offend but to explain God's word, to proclaim God's word. But please don't go away confused or angry. Please come and talk to me afterwards or uh, talk to one of the other um, elders or your small group leader if you're a regular here. Don't, don't just leave it to simmer. Okay, uh, let's start. Uh, you've got an outline. Um, we'll stick pretty closely to it. Uh, start, honor God by being what you are. 
So chapter 11, verse 2, I praise you, Paul writes, for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Well, perhaps not quite everything, we might say, you know. But basically Paul's saying, look, you're doing really well as a church. I mean, other than the sexual immorality, the idolatry, the divisions in the wilderness, but you're doing pretty well considering where you've come from. I'm really proud of the way that you're, you're keeping to my traditions, as in you're, you're following the teaching I've given you. But there are one or two points that I'd just like to touch on. And in chapter 11, he's going to deal with uh, two sides of division, really. So he's going to say, in the first half, you're making, you're ignoring the rightful distinctions you should be making between uh, men and women. And in the second half of chapter 11, you are placing wrongful distinctions between rich and poor within your church. So chapter 11 is about ignoring rightful distinctions and putting in place wrongful ones. But the rightful distinctions between men and women in church. Now notice, this passage is about the conduct of church meetings. It has no relevance for Monday morning in your office. Nothing in this passage or any other passage in the Bible says a woman cannot be senior partner of the firm. Nothing in this passage or any other passage in the Bible implies women cannot lead and excel in the workplace. We need to be really clear on that. And actually, this passage isn't about what women uh, can't or can do in church. Have you noticed, women and men do the same things in this passage. They both pray and they both prophesy. It just says, you, you just act a little different and you dress a little different when you do. Uh, so be careful that we understand what it is saying rather than uh, think it's saying things it isn't. Now, uh, verse 3 states a principle and then 4 to 6 will explain what that principle is for the church at Corinth. So verse 3, the principle. But I want you to realize, Paul says, that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. You'll see there is a, there is a little footnote. Immediately we've got a couple of questions of meaning. The Greek words for man and woman, men and women are exactly the same as the Greek words for husband and wife. So it could be either. I think here it should be man and woman, partly because he doesn't use a possessive pronoun. So he doesn't say his wife or her husband, which you'd expect if he's talking about um, husbands and wives, because it's not as if the head of every wife is every husband. It's uh, only her own husband. So you'd expect a possessive pronoun. It's not there. So I think uh, for that and a number of other reasons, it is probably uh, men and women. Uh, generally. But obviously the, the issue is sharpest between a husband and wife. Okay, secondly, the word head. What does that mean? Um, traditionally it was understood to mean authority, but a number of people say it doesn't really have any implications of authority. It's just talking about a source, like the head of a river. I'm not sure that's right. Uh, so people would argue that um, just as it, what it's talking about is that um, Adam uh, was first and Eve came from Adam doesn't imply any authority it just implies that uh, he was the source of Adam originally but the clear meaning in almost all the passages where head is used is authority and in particular in passages which are talking about male and female relations it is uh, it is authority so um, Paul's teaching to husbands and wives a couple of letters later Ephesians 5 he says verse 22 wives submit to yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is head of the wife as Christ head of the church so it's clear that headship and authority are, are really related things that's what he's talking about but before we go any further note please 
Which is the first group described as being under authority in this passage? The men. This is not a passage about how uh, men rule and women submit. This is a passage that tells us, first off, that all of us, all of us have a head. All of us are under authority. Headship is not, submission is not for women. Submission in the church, in the Bible, is for everyone. At different times, at different stages, in different scenarios, we all have to submit as children to our parents, as pupils to our school teachers, as employees to our bosses during normal working hours, whatever that means these days, Uh, in church to our elders. And even Christ himself is under authority. Do you see at the end of verse 3? And the head of uh, woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Jesus Christ, that is God the Son, submits to God the Father for all eternity. He is our model for submission. God himself submits. It's an extraordinary thought. But you and I are made in the image of a God who in his essence is Father, Son, and Spirit. And in his essence, the Son is fully equal with the Father, and yet, for all eternity, he delights to submit to his wonderful, loving Father. So the point Paul is making is that just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fully equal in status, but have different roles, so man and woman are fully equal in status and dignity and value, but we have slightly different roles. And we are to celebrate that difference rather than try to deny it. That's all Paul is saying here. Now that brings us to uh, the application in verses 4 to 6. And yet another question. And this time that's about what prophecy is in the passage. Let's read the verses first though. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Right. (laughs) Firstly, prophecy. What is going on? What is the thing that's being done? Now, prophecy is a broad word in the New Testament. It it refers to a whole load of different things. Uh, In in Corinthians, it seems to refer to uh, a form of teaching. But it's not a sort of authoritative teaching like a sermon. It's, it's slightly different. So in 1 Corinthians 14, it talks about the elders having to weigh the prophecies to determine which ones um, have status as being, uh, this is definitely what God is saying to us. So it's a sort of non-authoritative teaching offered to the church. So when the, when the letter of 1 Corinthians was written, the, the church had very, very little of the New Testament. So the main way that God taught the church was through giving prophecies. And so people would stand up at the front um, bringing prophecies that uh, they thought God was giving to them. And then the elders would have to weigh them to decide, is that really what God is saying? Uh, So that's what's going on. It's a non-authoritative teaching uh, about God. And notice that the application is not, therefore, something that is to do with how men and women relate to each other. There is nothing about how men and women should relate to each other in this text at all. Paul gives no application on that, and so we should not supply our own. The application is about how men and women should each deliver their ministry within church, but not about how they should interact. There's nothing about women should uh, behave like this and men should uh, take charge of the women like that. It's not about that. 
The only application is the manner in which they exercise their ministries. Now, there are yet more questions about whether the phrase translated head covered is about a hat or a veil or a way of doing your hair. I told you it was a difficult passage. Uh, Frankly, I don't think it matters. It really doesn't matter. The point is, that's very clear, they were not to ignore the culturally accepted ways of dressing that signified uh, submission, reverence to, to male authority. So whatever it was that uh, it's describing, and the word could mean an awful lot of things to do with your head and your hair, it just, in Corinth, if a woman failed to have this particular hairdo or head covering, it's probably some sort of veil, it signified, I, I don't live with male authority, I ignore it, I reject it. And so he says, I don't behave like that in church. Now, things are a little bit different in London today. Uh, we still have things that are symbolic. It's not as if, you know, they, they, had, they sort of lived in a time where everything was symbolic and we don't. You know, if a man walks into a pub on Friday night and you see him take off his wedding ring as he goes in, that is a symbolic act with enormous meaning. Or if uh, you are um, hosting an interview at work um, in a law firm and the candidate walks in wearing their pyjamas and a sort of three-day-old slept-in t-shirt and they're unshaven with their hair all not done and they sort of slump down into the chair there's a there's a symbolism in the way that they've arrived at the interview for a professional services firm you might want to say i think you're meant to be an it entrepreneur (laughs) rather than a lawyer you know there is a sort of you know it means something the way you dress in different industries doesn't it um the principle so what's the principle that's going on here the principle is men and women are to engage in ministry in church But as they do so, women are not to try to be like men, and nor are men to try to be like women. Because men and women are equal in status, equal in value, but they have different roles. And so we shouldn't try to to blur that or deny that distinction. See, true diversity is the beauty of uh, differences that aren't denied, but are celebrated. And where differences aren't uh, given different importance, but where we value everybody equally for what they do, and yet we recognize people do different things. That is true diversity. Okay, so that's basically what Paul says. The, the teaching of the passage is three to six, in which he says, look, honor God by being what you are. Women don't try to be like men. Men don't try to be like women. Pray and prophesy in church. Minister in church and do so in ways that that acknowledge who God has made you rather than try to deny who God has made you. Because you've got to give a reason for this sort of stuff. And he does now in verses 7 to 16. He gives a number of arguments. You'll see they're on the sheet. Firstly, because of creation. Uh, start with verses 7 to 9. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For a man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So order and hierarchy within um, male and female relations are not a result of the fall. They're not something sinful. They're something in God's created order. They're part of the fabric of creation, if you like. Abuse, manipulation, bullying, oppression, those are products of the fall, but not order. And note that uh, verse 7 doesn't say uh, women are made in the image of men. You'd expect that because of the parallel of verses. But women and men are equally made in the image of God. So don't misread the verses, which is easy to do here. But Genesis 1, having taught us 
that man and woman alike are made in the image of God, fully equal. Genesis 2 then says, but God has given them different roles in creation. Man is made first. He is given responsibility as the head, the representative. And woman is made from man. So in, in Genesis' account, we're told God took a rib from Adam to make Eve. And Adam cannot do what God has called him to do without Eve's help. So Eve is called in Genesis a helper, which in our twisted thinking, well, that's so demeaning. You know, Adam is called to serve God. Eve is just, you know, a helper. That's so demeaning until you realize that dozens of times in the Bible that God calls himself helper. That in John 16, the Holy Spirit is described as our helper. Helper is not a demeaning status at all in the Bible. It's a wonderful, glorious role that God himself gives uh, to himself, to his spirit, as he comes alongside us. So because of creation, secondly, verse 10, because of the angels. It is for this reason, referring back and forward, that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. So probably best translated, a sign of authority over her head because of the angels. Now, I have read dozens of articles on this, and I have no idea. (laughs) I just don't have any idea what it means. Um, I trust that in time, um, Bible scholars will work it out, and um, I hope that by the next time I come to preach 1 Corinthians, which will be a while, um, uh, that we'll have a better understanding of what it means. But no, no key doctrine stands or falls on this. And so there's, there's, I don't think we, we are left bereft or that any key pillar of Christianity collapses because we're not quite sure what this verse means. But at the very least, it does remind us that there is something more than just human going on. There is something more than just physical. There is another realm and another dimension when we gather. So in Ephesians 3.10, uh, God says that as the church gathers, it is a sign to the dark spiritual forces of the world who are watching that they are doomed and condemned because God has brought people back to each other and back to himself. And so perhaps, perhaps here, uh, as the angels witness uh, the order and submission and joy of church, they celebrate and see the power and the glory of God who can make it happen. But I don't know. Uh, okay, verses 11 to 12 of God. Now, because of God, this is, a, this is a crucial little segment in the argument and where he qualifies what he's saying, but he also reaffirms it. Uh, let me explain. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. In other words, the new status that we have as believers in Christ, that you and I are fully forgiven, that we're adopted as God's children, that new status and the new ministries that we have through the Holy Spirit, they are not another card to play in gender politics. They are not uh, another, another string to our bow as we try to outdo each other and show off. Christianity does not give status and independence to anybody. It gives humility and teaches mutual dependence. We're made to need one another and to serve one another. So no ministry, no gift is ever a status symbol in the New Testament. Ever. Men and women are designed to need each other in creation and in the church. You see that in the pattern of creation. So Eve may have come after Adam and from Adam, but every man who's ever drawn breath since then has come from a woman. 
So there is a mutuality here. It's interesting, actually. So the other big passage in the New Testament where Paul talks strongly about the headship of men over of husbands over wives in Ephesians 5, he begins with mutual submission. Submit to one another in Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. So first, submit to one another. So although there is order in the New Testament, although there is submission, there is a great stress on mutual submission. It is not a patriarchal Victorian 1950s man does what he wants and women you know, move around and do what they're told. That is not what's going on. We submit to one another, we serve one another within the order that God has given. And I think that um, actually the, the final phrase is basically a universal smackdown. Uh, so, <laughs> so also man is born of woman but everything comes from God. You know, you can play your status games and your one-upmanship, but frankly, you're a creature. I'm a minister in the church. I'm an elder. I'm a small group leader. I teach from the front. Big deal, you're a creature. God's a creator. He could have made you slime if he'd wanted to. Could have made you a squirrel if he'd wanted to. He could have given you any gift he wanted. He gave you this one, not so that you'd feel proud, but so you'd serve other people. Everything comes from God. So forget the horizontal looking and the the status games and the, the obsession with having this title and that role in church. It really doesn't matter. God is the creator. God is sovereign. And it all comes from him. Being his children is far more exciting. There's that wonderful bit, those of us who've been studying Luke in small groups. Do you remember Jesus sent out the 72 disciples and he gave them power to cast out demons and heal the sick. And they come back and say, even the demons submitted in our name. And he said, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the great thing. Rejoice that we're children of God saved by Jesus Christ. Forget the nonsense of uh, I have this ministry or that ministry. It really doesn't matter. God is God is our creator and everything comes from him. And we should use our roles and gifts not to feel better and superior, but to serve in humility. Finally, yeah, well, penultimately, you know it's right, 13 to 15. Verses 13 to 15. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. Yes. Okay, now I've read lots of stuff on these verses this week as well. Um, An email from a female vicar friend with very short hair uh, to an article by the long-haired males who run the the website Metalheads for Jesus. (laughs) Oh yes, it's a thing. Uh, Here's what I think these verses mean. God has sown into nature, into creation, an inherent sense of the difference between men and women. Some individual cultures at some points, like ours is seeming to at the moment, might try to deny it. But inherent within almost all cultures is just an awareness that there are differences between men and women. And so men instinctively resist wearing or doing things that uh, their culture views as feminine. And women instinctively, uh, they resist wearing or doing things that their culture sees as masculine. And in that culture, hair was perhaps the clearest, most visible marker between men and women. So his point is not that God's universal law of creation teaches men not to have hair like a 1980s glam rocker, and that women should never get an L.A. blow dry. I had to ask about that one, I promise. (laughs) Uh, His point is, look, there is just a universal law that men and women should be different. Now, in Scotland, it's fine for men to wear tartan, kilts, 
it, it's not subverting gender when they do that. But he's saying, look, in each culture there will be ways and inherent to us. We know in our very nature that there should be differences. And then a culture is allowed to determine what, what is male and what is feminine. And, and don't try to subvert that. Don't try to, to go against it. So guys, you can grow your hair long if you like. I just try, don't try to do it to look like a woman. And it's fine for girls to cut their hair short. But don't go to the barber and say, I want to look like Justin Bieber. That's why I want a grade two. You you can cut your hair short for any reason you like. But don't do it because you want to look like a man. That's the point he's making. So I hope that helps uh, avoid all sorts of misunderstandings about uh, these particular verses. Men and women are different. Those differences matter and they're glorious. And we shouldn't ignore them. Okay, uh, the final reason he gives is every other church does it this way. So verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice and nor do the churches of God. Now, Christianity is not a democracy in spite of what the Church of England seems to be um, doing at the moment, which is, uh, well, every doctrine's up for grabs if, if our culture says that it's changed. No, no, it's God who decides what goes and what doesn't go. So even if all the churches in the world agree something, but it goes contrary to the Bible. It's the Bible we should stick with, not all the churches in the world. But, and this is a very important but, we are not the first church to hold a Bible in our hands. And we are not the first generation of Christians to try to work out what the Bible means. And so we should be very, very slow to come to a, a conclusion that contradicts what Bible-believing, Bible-serious Christians have held for generations and generations, or what Bible-believing, Bible-serious Christians believe around the world. So it matters. It should just slow us down from doing or believing things that radically depart from what uh, other Christians hold to. Okay, as we close, what do we do in the light of this passage? Uh, Three things. Uh, The first one is different from what it says on your sheet. Value the ministry of women. Value the ministry of women is the first thing we should do. The easiest thing to do with the attention-grabbing stuff about male headship and head coverings in church is to assume that, uh, or is to miss the fact that this passage assumes women will be praying and prophesying in church. Now, 1 Timothy 2 says the authoritative preaching should be done by the male elders, but this makes it very clear that public ministry of teaching and praying in church ought to be done by women. That means... Not all churches that have male leadership are biblical. It is quite possibly to be, to be unbiblical by asserting male headship in church in a way which undervalues women's ministry. Don't assume that every church that says we hold to male headship is being biblical. Some of them aren't. Some of them are, are just being unbiblical in the way they ignore and downplay women's ministry. So it's, it's important that we don't miss that. Women can and should teach and lead in church. We mustn't deny them the ministries that God says you and I need if this church is to grow. And that's why women at Christ Church Mayfair co-lead small group studies where they teach the Bible midweek. That's why we pay to have two women's workers. Women can and should lead and teach in church in all sorts of settings. And I think it's also this, I think this passage to me uh, has been a reminder that the men who do preach, we're idiots if we don't seek the teaching and insight of women in the church as we work out both what the Bible means and how it applies to us 
In fact, the, the life of this church, the spiritual life of this church will be impoverished if the men who preach do not seek regularly the insight of the women who are part of this church. Uh, so ladies, um, don't think there is no point deepening your theological knowledge because you're not going to preach. Please don't think that. Learn and grow and deepen and then share your insights with us. Talk to us, email us, uh, help us. Uh, I can honestly say I have never preached a sermon at CCM without my wife, Juliet, having uh, not only read it before, but edited it and helped me and discussed it with me and worked things through and shown me where she thinks it's wrong or unhelpful. And I wouldn't because I need, uh, I need her help and the help of others. Uh, what this is, I think what this has reminded me is that uh, I should more often get the help of other people, men and women in the church. I do that a little bit. I should probably do it more. But we must value the ministry of women. We must, must do that if we're to be obedient to this passage. Secondly, we should celebrate diversity. Which is better, a hammer or a glass? Which is better, hammer or a glass? Oh, if you want to smash stuff, the hammer's more useful. But if I'm thirsty and I want to drink, the hammer is about as much use as a chocolate kettle. It's just, you know, it's frankly useless. We need different things. And the, the liberating message of the Bible is that God has made us with certain inherent differences which are good and healthy, and that we need as a community. And just as a a symphony would be pretty dull if you had just all the instruments with the same instrument, and they all just played one note. Actually, Aaron's probably composed one like that. (laughs) But Yeah, you have, haven't you? Yeah. (laughs) You need diversity. Diversity is beautiful. And diversity, especially the diversity between men and women, reflects and teaches us about the glorious diversity of our God, who Father, Son, and Spirit is fully equal as God and diverse and distinct in the roles in which they have. Difference matters. Diversity is beautiful, and it teaches us about God. God has made each and every person here unique and valuable. And this church needs not for you to want to be like somebody else, but for you to be who God has made you and to serve in the way the Spirit has gifted you. And that's true for every individual, and it's true irrespective of your gender. Finally, submission is sacred. Look, if it is not beneath God, the Son, the creator of the universe, to submit himself to what his parents said when he was a child... To submit himself to paying taxes to the authorities when he grew up as an adult. And to submit himself for all eternity to God the Father who is equal to him, not above him in status. Then how can any of us say it's demeaning, it's beneath me to submit to the order that God has set up? So you see, submission is not just commanded in the Bible, it is sanctified. It is sacred because it is what Jesus did. And I have to say, um, I could get in trouble for saying this, but I, the thing that made me most uncomfortable in the debates about uh, whether women should become vicars and most recently whether women should become bishops is the implications for everybody else. Because I heard a number of people say, uh, I feel demeaned that I don't have this role. It tells me I'm not valuable. What that made me wonder is, what do they think about the rest of us who are not bishops? Do they think we're not valuable because we're not bishops, if only bishops are really valuable? 
What does that mean for everybody else? If, if only vicars are really valuable in church, what does that mean for musicians? Or administrators? Or people who serve in the creche? If Matt Fuller is the senior minister, does that mean that I'm not valuable because I'm not the senior? And actually all of us should, we should all want to be called the senior minister and then we'd be as valuable as... It's a crazy way to live. Christianity sets us free. Christianity sets us free from seeking status in titles I have and jobs I do. Secure in the knowledge that God loves me and values me. And he gave his son for me and he adopted me into his family. It means that I'm secure in the knowledge that I can stop worrying about status and title and job and, and what other people think. And I can give myself to serving others. And I can trust God that he has put me in these circumstances and he has gifted me with these ministries. And I can just get on with serving. It wasn't beneath his son to serve and it's not beneath us. Let's pray. Father, this uh, passage does say things that are difficult to understand and we pray that you would give us uh, sharp minds that we might understand what your truth uh, says, understand your word properly. And having understood it, we pray that you would give us soft hearts so that we might not be proud, that we might not uh, run with the spirit of our age and demand status, but instead might humble ourselves and follow the path of the Lord Jesus to glory. And Father, we pray that you would help us uh, both to be convinced of uh, these truths ourselves, but also to uh, have confidence that we might um, live and speak in our culture in a way which shows your glorious light to people who are very confused. And we ask all this for your son's glorious name. Amen.